a hawker Sidley Trident takes off from Heathrow Airport in 1972. Mere moments afterwards, it crashes in a field near Staines, killing all 118 on board. What happened, and what can we learn about authority gradients and ergonomics? Come on board as we discover the human factor. Hello and welcome to this 10th and final episode in the first series of my podcast, The Human Factor. My name's Katie and as always, I'll be your host today. Today we're looking at British European Airways Flight 548, which was a scheduled Hawker Siddeley Trident flight, uh, theoretically going from Heathrow to Brussels, which departed on the 18th of June 1972. British European Airways Flight 548 had three crew on board for this particular trip. Captain Stanley Key was in the left-hand seat. He was 51 years old and had about 15,000 flying hours. A number of these, a number of thousand of these had been on Trident, so he was very experienced on the aircraft. In the right-hand seat was Second Officer Jeremy Keeley, only 22. He had uh, fewer than 30 flying hours on the Trident, so was very inexperienced. And Second Officer Simon Ticehurst was uh, P3, again very young, in his early 20s. About 1,500 flying hours in total, about half of those on Trident. So quite a significant difference in terms of experience levels and a hugely significant difference in terms of age. And this does become relevant to why the aircraft crashed. At the time of the incident, there was quite a significant industrial dispute going on within BEA and indeed within uh, UK aviation as a whole. And Balper were talking about whether or not strike action was needed. Fundamentally, this all centred around whether or not the pilots wanted to strike for higher wages. There was quite a significant generational split between the older pilots who were against the strike and the younger pilots who were quite keen on it. As a result, in the crew room just before the flight, Captain Key had had a very heated and very public argument with the first officer. Now, he was vehemently opposed to the idea of striking. The first officer was pro it. But the argument had been heard by a significant number of people and understandably caused quite an unpleasant atmosphere. Checking in for their flight and their pre-flight briefing, having witnessed this argument, undoubtedly the two first officers will have felt quite intimidated by the captain and his fairly violent argumentative outburst towards somebody else. This whole thing happened in the days before flight data recording, so cockpit voice recorders weren't a thing, and thus a lot of what we're going to be discussing today is almost conjecture. However, The flight itself was so important in aviation history because it was one of the reasons that cockpit voice recording was brought in and is ubiquitous worldwide. So the crew settled in, they did their brief and they went out to the aircraft. The start of the flight went perfectly normally. Captain Key was the pilot flying so he was handling the aircraft and the takeoff was initially completely uneventful. During the climb out however, the captain held a speed that was below the expected airspeed for reasons unknown. Normally, during the climb-out, the aircraft were asked to reduce their engine power in order to minimise the amount of noise that was uh, being subjected to those living underneath the flight path. And this was quite closely monitored, and there were significant penalties for doing it wrong. As a result, the captain reduced the power, as expected, and at this point, he also uh, retracted the flaps. Alongside the reduction in power, when the aircraft was already below the optimum climb speed, the captain retracted the flaps. 
This loss of lift also caused a reduction in the airspeed, and by this point they were more than 20 knots slower than they should have been for the climb-out. At less than 1,800 feet, and again considerably slower than they should have been, the captain moved the lever that was uh, controlling the droops, the leading-edge high-lift devices. So they were already slow. This extra high-lift device, which allowed the aircraft to fly at a lower airspeed, was then retracted. And this put the aircraft into a stall, into an aerodynamic stall. Within only three seconds of this lever moving, the autopilot disconnected, they had a stick shaker, so the control column was physically shaking to alert them to the fact that they had stalled the aircraft. And they had a stick pusher, which essentially pushed the nose down to get them out of this state. Now, of course, they're very close to the ground at this point, and it was a complete shock. So they suffered from what was called startle effect. It takes a second to realise what's going on in these sorts of instances. However, what should have happened at this point was what we call a standard stall recovery. What actually happened was that the stick pusher was overridden. Like any system, in theory it can go wrong and there's always a way of overriding the system. But this was an instance where it absolutely hadn't gone wrong. Yet they decided that the stall warnings were erroneous and wanted to ignore them. Keeping the aircraft in this stall, and the Trident itself was very, very prone to deep stalling, the aircraft essentially fell out of the sky. There was no lift available. And it crashed into the ground, near stains, killing all on board, and thoroughly destroying the aircraft. But what actually happened? The Staines air disaster remains one of the most significant things that has ever happened in British aviation history. It's the deadliest air disaster that has ever occurred, so accepting any terrorist incidents, such as Lockerbie, it is the deadliest air disaster ever in British history on British soil. And it was also the reason that aircraft these days have mandatory cockpit voice recorders, and that's all commercial airliners worldwide. So its impact was hugely widely felt, and hugely significant. The absolute reason for the crash, of course, is fairly obvious. The aircraft was in a stall, and due to a complete lack of lift, of course, it couldn't stay in the sky. But getting to the point of stalling an aircraft is quite significant, and in many ways quite challenging. Because even in the 1970s and the early 70s, there were an awful lot of barriers put in place to stop crews from getting to that point. Thinking about the stick pusher and the stick shaker, for example, but also all of the standard operating procedures beforehand. So, as per usual, we're looking at an instance here where the Swiss cheese model is really appropriate. Lots of little things led up to this incident. Now, one of the real challenges that came along with trying to investigate the crash of BEA Flight 548 was that there was no cockpit voice recorder. These days, looking at any accident investigation, listening to what the crew said, how they communicated, gives us huge amounts of information about what happened. And this just wasn't possible at this point. It's not that the technology didn't exist, because it absolutely did, but there was no mandated use of them. So the Trident, for example, didn't have a CVR. So all we've got to go on, in many ways, is what was witnessed by other people, trends within the airline, and the information from the flight data recorder, so the physical inputs that the crew took, which is how we know that the aircraft entered a deep stall. One of the most significant contributory factors to the crash is likely to be Captain Key's health. So when they conducted an autopsy, it turned out that he was suffering from atherosclerosis, 
So essentially, this would have meant that the stress of the argument that he'd had in the crew room could have impacted his blood pressure, injured his arteries, and potentially caused incapacitation, if not even death. There's no proof that that's happened, because, as I say, there is no evidence of who took certain inputs. But it's an explanation for how some of the actions, if they had been taken by Captain Key, wouldn't necessarily have made sense, such as retracting the droops. He was a hugely experienced pilot, had huge amounts of combat experience as well as commercial experience, and would certainly have understood that decreasing the amount of lift available at that point was a really bad idea. But then the question arises, why did nobody else challenge him? And we can look back to what happened in the crew room. The culture within British aviation at this point was quite significantly different from what it is now, fortunately. So a lot of these individuals who were flying as captains had been World War II fighter aces, for instance, and had had huge amounts of power from that and huge amounts of, of kind of authority. And a number of these individuals who were flying in the right-hand seat, such as the two second officers, would have felt really quite intimidated to challenge that. Now, if we look at combining that with having watched an individual have a really quite vicious argument with another first officer in public, knowing that he can be that aggressive, suddenly challenging a decision that's made is really, really difficult. And let's add further to that with the fact that the second officer in the right-hand seat, so the one that was actually at the controls, only had 29 hours on that aircraft type. So it was all very new to him. His capacity bucket would have been pretty full already, thinking about everything that was going on, thinking about what he was going to do next, and just learning the aircraft. And he was already faced with flying with an individual who had a reputation and who had already been aggressive, albeit not to them, but had already been aggressive. And thus, this just makes the ability to challenge that decision so much harder. There were, of course, two second officers on the flight deck that day. The individual in the right-hand seat having very few hours and the one in the flight engineer's seat being more experienced. However, his focus was likely on the power reduction that was mandated and that they were penalised for if they didn't manage. But also there was an off-duty captain flying in the jump seat. And there's a really good chance that they would have been distracted by talking or just simply by his presence. Interestingly, the authority gradients, while rare within British aviation these days, do still exist worldwide. That culture of deference to senior individuals, to more experienced individuals, to older individuals, does still persist. There was also a challenge of ergonomics. So the design of the Trident flight deck was such that actually choosing the wrong lever when you were perhaps meaning to choose something that wasn't the droop lever, fundamentally, um, but were distracted, or in the case of Captain Key, conceivably incapacitated, wouldn't necessarily be that difficult. This is something that's occurred in various aircraft types over the years, and indeed does still occur in some aircraft types. But you will notice that if you go into most reasonably modern flight decks these days, levers will be a specific shape, so your flap lever will be the shape of a flap. Your gear lever will be the shape of a wheel. And it's that kind of adjustment to the ergonomics of the design that is there to try and stop people from inadvertently moving the wrong thing because it feels different. This wasn't necessarily the case in the Trident fly deck. 
Fundamentally, the biggest and most significant contributory factor to the reason the BEA Flight 548 crashed was culture. The culture of fear, the culture of us versus them, and the fact that a very, very inexperienced second officer didn't feel they could speak up. And partly that will have been self-induced, so the fact that he'd convinced himself that certain captains would act in a certain way, and partly it's going to be the culture of those individuals and of the airline, of course. There's a huge number of contributory factors to why the culture was functionally toxic, but also dangerous. And this really does feed through to other industries. So thinking about, for example, mergers of different teams. If different teams have different cultures, that us versus them idea, it's incredibly difficult to get them to intermesh, to intertwine, and to work together for the sake of safety. It's very difficult to get people to understand why they might not always be in the right. Because, of course, their culture was okay. They'd always been doing it right. And looking at the crew of BEA Flight 548, the captain was of an era where flying was a passion. It wasn't all about money. It was about the love of aviation. And he'd been through a huge amount to get to where he was. But for those second officers, this was a career. It required them to be paid well. And they had different outlooks. It doesn't mean that either of them was necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily incumbent, in this instance at least, on one particular individual to change their views. The real solution would have been to understand their views and, and to work as a team. But getting to that point is incredibly difficult. And as I say, I think this is where the biggest lessons can be learned from the crash of this aircraft, is trying to overcome that authority gradient. Had these been two captains who had come from different backgrounds, one who was vehemently pro-strike and one who was anti-strike, I suspect the outcome would have been different. I couldn't guarantee it, of course, but I suspect things would have been different because they wouldn't then have had to overcome another barrier of authority. Authority gradients are very, very difficult, but it's really important in any safety-critical situation, and indeed in most non-safety-critical situations, that those who are perhaps less senior feel as empowered to be able to speak up about things that they don't think are going correctly especially when it comes to safety. Now, it doesn't mean that things are necessarily going to change, but people should always feel listened to. And feeling valued not only improves safety, but it improves performance as well. Getting to the point of people feeling valued, of course, is a real challenge. And this leads back to something we've spoken about before, the concept of a just culture, that people feel that they can speak up without being penalised, which really was something that just didn't exist in BEA at that point. It's really telling about the human nature that in a totally safety-critical situation where what was at stake was these individuals' lives, they didn't feel empowered to speak up. They didn't feel that they could say, functionally, oi, you're about to kill us. They didn't feel they could step in. So if we then translate that to a situation which is less safety-critical, why on earth would somebody necessarily feel that they are empowered to speak up about something that isn't risking their life if the biggest thing they've got to lose isn't always enough to stand up and be counted? That's all for this episode. Again, thank you so much for listening, for making it to the end, uh, for getting involved. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, like and uh, follow the podcast on whichever social media channels you use. 
I'll be taking a couple of weeks break to regroup for the next series, which is going to include some special guests and some collaborations with people such as Steve Giordano. So very excited about that. And of course, lots more interesting new accidents to discuss.